there's no such thing as clean energy. It doesn't exist. And I'm sure that the top finance people get that. If you followed so-called clean energy solar panels from the start of finding the silicon and the uh, aluminum and the copper and all this stuff, you'd see a lot of messy mining. You'd also see a lot of messy morality. Imagine spending an hour with the world's greatest traders. Imagine learning from their experiences, their successes, and their failures. Imagine no more. Welcome to Top Traders Unplugged, the place where you can learn from the best hedge fund managers in the world so you can take your manager due diligence or investment career to the next level. Before we begin today's conversation, remember to keep two things in mind. All the discussion we'll have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their product before you make investment decisions. Here's your host, veteran hedge fund manager, Niels Kostrup Larsen. Welcome or welcome back to another conversation in our collection of podcast series that focuses on markets and investing from a number of different and fascinating perspectives. In the Galactic Macro series, we want to explore and be part of the discussions that relate to the unexplained and unknown objects, as well as what's going on in the world of AI, because these two seemingly unrelated topics may indeed be related. This is a series that I not only find incredibly interesting, as well as intellectually challenging, but also very important, given the strong momentum we see at the moment in terms of releasing previously classified information, as well as the exponential adoption of AI tools by the wider public. We want to dig deep into the minds of some of the most prominent experts to help us better understand what this new galactic macro world may look like and how you should think about positioning yourself for it. And we want to explore their perspectives on a host of game-changing issues and hopefully dig out nuances in their work through meaningful conversations. So please enjoy today's episode hosted by David Dahl. Wonderful, Niels. Thank you for the introduction. Dr. Paul Sullivan, pleasure to have you with us. I'm particularly thrilled to to be able to have a conversation with you that's actually out in the the open. You and I have have talked for more than a I think more than a decade now, and uh, I'm a big fan of of your work and your insights. And I thought there would be tremendous value in in sharing your knowledge with you know this this audience. We have a very sophisticated audience, but rarely do they have the opportunity to to listen to people with such an extensive you know background and history such as yours. Why don't we start? You know. Tell the audience a little bit about your your career, kind of just given an over gentle 30,000 foot arc of, of your career. Okay, I think more like 45,000 feet. I'm up in one of Elon Musk's uh, big rockets looking down. Well, let's just say it kind of started 44 years ago, but it really started well before that uh, when I was noticing the world when I was a youngster. Uh, as a fisherman, a professional fisherman, and also worked on trucks. And I know what it's like to have calluses on my hands. Uh, that's well before my academic or intellectual career started, but it helped develop it. First of all, I realized how life is 
for working people and why it's important to hit the books. And, uh, well, I spent how many countries I've been in? I lost count a long time ago. One of my Yale students asked me that uh, during the work to term last year, and I gave a number, and then I looked at the map, and I realized I was way off. So I'm not even going to give you a, a, a count. Uh, I, I started uh, my research uh, for my PhD in India. That was a very interesting moment, if you don't mind me going into a little detail of it. Uh, I just learned a few days before that my family would no longer pay for my PhD because I've reached a certain age where I should handle things myself. You know, this happens. It used to happen in this country anyway. Good parents. So, uh, yes, very responsible. By poor, putting the responsibility on me, I was able to succeed in many ways. Well, I was going to the Yale Gymnasium on my way back from the Yale Gymnasium to the economics department. Uh, I ran into my economic development professor, and he walked past me and then turned around, and he would always turn his head like this when he had an important question. You know, people like that, they had these quirks. Brilliant guy. So, Paul, how would you like to go to India? And I looked at him and said, how long do I have to think about this? He said, two weeks. Yes. So, on that curious, and this is the story, most of life is dumb luck. Absolutely dumb luck. If you have a plan for it, forget about it. Even when you're my age, you have a plan and so forth, forget it. Things happen. So my entire uh, PhD was paid for. I got three jobs out of this. I worked a lot of hours for them. Went to India three times. Learned about South Asia, which led into my time in the Middle East. I had an interregnum of uh, what I call the uh, root canal time as a uh, consultant in Los Angeles, uh, which ended with me uh, not exactly liking what I'm doing and seeing an advertisement uh, uh, sometime after that for the American University in Cairo when the internet was just being developed. You remember that back then when you went onto your computer? Yeah. What is this thing? I'm talking with someone in another part of the world. So anyway, I landed in uh, Cairo at the American University in Cairo and I'm speaking with the department head and I, of course, curious is what they want me to do. And his answer was, we want you to teach about the economics of the Middle East, the economic history of the Middle East, and the economic development in the Middle East. And here I am, someone who's never taken a uh, Middle East course in his life. This is my third visit to the Middle East, and they're landing this on me. So over the next six years, I learned the Middle East in depth, I traveled all over the region, met with the leaders. It completely turned my life around. I couldn't have got that job unless I was in India a few years earlier. The fellow interviewing me uh, said, have you ever been to any developing countries? Because Egypt is not an easy country to live in. And I said, India. He said, oh, Egypt's going to be easy for you. you know, the first few weeks in India, I'm eating toast and tea, wondering what is this stuff on the plate? had to look at a map to figure out where I was. I'm in my early 20s, just shaking my head. Why am I doing this? And I learned the international way, I guess the hard way. I was never given the books. This is what international relations are. Uh, this is the history of India. I read thousands of books about the history of the Middle East. And once I got there, I tossed most of them in the bin because I realized they were completely and utterly useless documents 
with axes to grind. You don't get anything objective from any kind of book on the Middle East as far as I can judge. And I'm not gonna I'm not gonna take the time to write a book about the Middle East because it would take me 30 years to try to get rid of all the edges. Then I came back here uh, after six years and with a wife and a baby. That changed my life. I expected to be in Egypt for two years. That was my first contract, and that was it. Be back here, uh, go work for a consulting firm or a university. Six years later, married with baby, going to the National Defense University. Now a bona fide expert in the Middle East. Because of all the dumb luck stuff that happened near the gymnasium at Yale University getting to India, and also just finding that by accident in the first days of the internet and sending in an application. And my interview for the first American University in Cairo job was the day of the first World Trade Center bombing. So I'm in a, uh, the house of one of my friends in Queens, and I'm looking over where I just interviewed, and it's full of smoke. And I have to convince my parents two months later when they offer me the job that I'm going to Egypt. Of course, Egypt is not one of the problems that was paramount at that time. But most Americans, their idea of the Middle East is everyone's dangerous, everyone's a threat, everyone's an enemy. I've lived there long enough, traveled long enough, some with 30 years now, to understand that is not the case. You just use your intuition. Uh, like I was speaking with my barber yesterday, I get a haircut for this. How do you know you're in a threat environment? You know, all the so-called experts say, take a look at the eyebrows, the facial expressions, all this other stuff. No, it's intuition. It's absolutely gut instinct. And I've had many instances of that. I was in school in Ireland and I was wearing an orange sweater. This is back in the late 1970s. And this guy pulls out a loaded 45 and says, take the sweater out. I didn't have to think that this was a threatening environment. I broke the land speed record. But you get a sense of that, and I guess that's kept me out of some trouble in the parts of the world that I've been to, and I've been to every continent except for Antarctica. I've published in uh, media in every continent, I'm pretty sure, except Antarctica. I don't think they have a, a journal there. Not, no, no news uh, desk and, down in uh, Antarctica. Yeah. You know, ask the penguins. They get out their typewriters with their... Uh, black and white suits on, but uh, no, it's it's been a it's been a gas. I suppose that's a 1970s, 1980s comment. It's been a challenge. It's not been easy. In order to keep up with what's going on, and, and uh, a lot of people think I'm a bit of a fanatic about energy, water, food, Middle East, Africa, Asia, all over the map. I've had people ask me, why don't you just settle on one subject? Well, with my mind, I would be bored silly after 24 hours and, and be an impossible person to deal with because they have to constantly dig for new ideas. In order to understand the world, and certainly the investors will be listening to this, most likely understand a lot of, you have to keep on digging into the issues that you have to look into and you dig into the issues on the edges and those you never really think about. Just pick up a book, pick up a magazine, Pick up a journal, pick up a map that has nothing to do with what you're looking at and twist your mind a little bit, stretch it a little bit. Otherwise, you're not going to understand what's going on. And uh, for me, it's 
pretty much, you know, I wake up at three o'clock in the morning with an idea in my head. Yeah. You know, here I am into my sixties and I'm still doing this. You're a machine. I, I guess, it, yeah, it keeps me alive in many ways. Keeps life interesting. The, the questions that we have for today are the sort of questions, some of them I've been thinking about for many, many years. Others are kind of uh, new to mind. But you can't understand any of this stuff through one discipline. Yeah, it's definitely it's cross-disciplinary. It, no, it, it's even more than that. It's cross-cultural. It's interreligious. It's interlinguistic. It's interphilosophical. Uh, I, I think to be a really good investor or advisor, you have to understand so many different fields. It's not just walking, oh, I found the numbers. Like this morning's numbers are the uh, BLS, uh, labor, the employment rates gone up, unemployment went down, GDP sharply upward. Conclusion, interest rates are going to increase. But there's a lot more going on there. Yeah, if, on, if only it were and, so simple. You know, I, I, every once in a while I listen to Bloomberg uh, the close and the beginning in the morning. And I'm just thinking, this is all short-term thinking. It's all so short-term as to be ridiculous. If you're going to be an investor, you have to think long-term, short-term, medium-term, and then upside-down-term. What's going to happen if something, well, I, I hate the expression black swan because there are black swans in Australia and there are black and white swans in Chile. Uh, black swans is definitely an Anglo-centric view of way of looking at the world. Black swans happen every day, and uh, we should really call them something else. And that Nicholas Dalibi book, I think it was, about the black swans, intellectually challenging for about five minutes. Paul, let's let's dive into to some of these these edges. Well, first we'll start with uh, first. I'd like to start with an area that everybody talks about practically none understand. Um, you have become first by dumb luck and then, you know, later through career experience, you are a Middle East expert. You know, that was one of the things that struck me from our first conversation over a decade ago. Um, you are one of the sharpest minds that I've ever heard on, on the Middle East. And, you know, the Middle East just feels complicated for a lot of people because it is. And, and, what I see is it seems like people don't pay attention to the details. One of the the news items that had caught my attention and I shared with you is that, and I don't see really anybody in the news talking about it, is, you know, with Syria and, and the Arab League. And I was curious as to kind of your, your comments on that. How do you see Syria in particular and, and things unfolding in the Middle East in general? Um, tell us, tell us, tell us what you see. Well, I'm going to have to describe my bias here first so people understand where I'm coming from. I will not go to Syria until the Assad Mafia is out of there. These people are butchers. Uh, their new name is Al-Assad, meaning the lion. The original family name was Wahif, which means uh, the barbarians, the, the kind of dangerous animals. Bring him back into the fold, the fold, this easily and this shortly after he slaughtered his people will backfire in the region. Uh, well, the reason why you're not hearing a lot of the people on the street complaining about this is that they're fearful. Uh, when the Arab spring, Arab winter, Arab disaster was starting, I was in a luncheon with a Jordanian high-level official and he asked us at this small dinner, 
why is it that Syria uh, is not falling like Egypt, Tunisia, and Libya? And pretty much our answer was fear. Because you have to go back to 1980 and Hafez al-Assad's Hama rules. There was a city in Syria that uh, tried to have a rebellion against the Hafez al-Assad regime. Uh, it was nominally Islamist. Hafez al-Assad sent tens of thousands of troops, killed thousands of people, cemented them over, and then went off to dinner. And people remember that. That's Hama rules. You don't mess with the Assads. And that's one of the reasons why this has continued in Syria so long is not necessarily because of uh, Bashar or his wife, who is a famously an Amazon entrepreneur and buys chocolates and chandeliers as her people are starving and getting brutalized. It was the mother, Hafez al-Assad's wife, uh, told Bashar on many occasions, don't back down, it'll ruin your father's legacy. Now think of the legacy of the father, a, a brutal, animalistic way of treating his own people to continue with the dictatorship. Uh, the son, when he first came back from his optometry schooling in London, I thought there was a little bit of hope, but I didn't know him. So I called up a person who wrote a book about him. I'm not going to mention this person because he may want to go back to Syria one day. And I said, what is with this guy? And he's got this weak chin. He looks like a normal person. Looks like he's not vicious. And probably because of his education, there's a good chance that he could turn the place around. He said, Paul, think of the Corleones. Michael Corleone is Bashar al-Assad. Just watch what happens. Interesting. Wow. He was right. And it's actually worse than Corleone. Corleone was pretty much just his enemies. Bashar is everyone. He'll mow down anyone. And the fact that the leaders of the Middle East are turning to befriend him and bring him back in again, I think it has more to do with oil pipelines and trade uh, and controlling Captagon. Well, that's that's what I wanted to ask about, because that's, you know, what's curious is considering his reputation is that what is the geopolitical rationale or the resource, you know, rationale for this? Tell, tell us a bit about the pipes, because a, a lot of people don't know that either. They 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 think of some of these proxy wars, but they don't understand the the strategic resources or, you know, the paths of these countries. And again, I know this is your wheelhouse. Well, it's it's a wheelhouse that's constantly shifting and in the middle of storms. You think of me being in a an oil tanker or a container ship. Uh, some of the days it's nice and calm. As I'm going through the Straits of Hormuz, you get out of the Hormuz into the Indian Ocean, and then you're in the middle of a hurricane. Uh, and they have to figure out what's going on, what caused this. Not a hurricane, rather a cyclone. Well, if it were possible to build pipelines uh, from Iraq uh, through Saudi Arabia, through Syria to the Mediterranean that would cut down the time, space, and expense. And there were actually pipelines there uh, that went through uh, Lebanon, uh, just north of uh, Beirut. Uh, and that was actually one of the reasons for the Beirut uh, nightmare, uh, arguments over those uh, revenues from the pipelines. 
But oil and gas will remain important. I don't care what the IEA and others say about this. We cannot transition from this quickly. And the Middle Eastern leaders are thinking about this. The Saudis, the UAE. Yes, we can move toward green hydrogen. We can do all this. But the the real big money, the real geopolitical power right now is in oil and gas, not even coal. And a lot of that oil and gas uh, will be transiting from the Gulf, from Saudi, from UAE, from Kuwait, uh, to Asia, certainly, but also to Europe. And now that the Ukraine war is there, think of this as a connection. How important will it be to get a faster route to Europe for the Gulf oil? A lot more important. And it's a lot cheaper. And you don't have to go through the risks of dealing with the Iranians uh, wanting to take pot shots or even uh, uh, kidnapping a ship. Uh, the Gulf of Hormuz, or the Straits of Hormuz, is a very uh, dicey place, as I'm sure all of your listeners know. Uh, but it is connected globally, which a lot of people don't really think about. The oil that comes out of Saudi Arabia, the UAE, Kuwait, going to Asia, doesn't just go through Hormuz. It goes through the Malacca also. And if you have to go through both, that means there are two choke points that have to be considered. And both of them are politically heated. Uh, Malacca, mostly because of the China connection in the U.S., the Chinese feel that the United States might want to cut off the routes going through the Malacca. That makes zero sense because we're talking about 30 to 40 percent of all world trade going through the South China Sea. And we shut that off. What do we do? We shut down our own economy. So get real, folks. A lot of these statements make no sense, and a lot of statements land in the press and the media and the social media, which is extremely dangerous in propaganda and misinformation. Uh, I know this may sound rambling, but it's all interconnected. If you can't figure out the connections between these choke points, connections between transport zones, and then connect it with the financial market, you're missing a very big point here. The warming up to Bashar al-Assad is not because Bashar al-Assad is a warm, fuzzy guy or that his administration is so nice. They're rats. They're dangerous murderers. This is money and power and strategic location and leverage. That's a big surprise, right, David? Nobody does that. Nobody does that. Everything's really, you know, nice guys getting together. Let's Let's sell oil so everyone has energy and can live a better life. Yeah, sure. What do you think is the, you know, so just in the news headlines, you know, last night is, you know, several of the, you know, press members, uh, Reuters, I think CNN, Bloomberg, um, at the last minute, they were booted out of the, the OPEC uh, meeting and had their credentials yanked. What is OPEC's strategy there? Well, I think they're sending a message. This is our meeting. This is our house. And if you're not going to agree with saying what we want to be said, you're not invited in. Do you think that that will backfire on them? Or do you think that that's strategically a good move for, for the outcomes that they're, they're pursuing? Well, I think it depends on what they're trying to hide. And what they're trying to keep dummied up. If you have the people who are in your pocket in the room, uh, you can say just about anything and then give them a press release. This is what you're going to write. We all know about that's how that works. Uh, but the, the Wall Street Journal, uh, there were some articles about OPEC and some of the OPEC players, for some of their uh, writers that really irritated OPEC people 
extremely. The, the OPEC leadership actually publicly uh, accused the Wall Street Journal of, of lying about certain things. Uh, and Reuters, uh, that's a little bit more baffling, but Reuters uh, is more all-encompassing than the Wall Street Journal. So there are probably things out there that were not uh, pro-Saudi. That's a big thing. Uh, but also the complexity of the Ukraine war has made the emotions of these meetings a, a lot deeper, a lot more complex. There's a constant narrative that pops up in the investment community and I certainly have some strong sentiments about it. You know, it's been around forever. It's the conversation about the BRICS, right? Brazil, Russia, India, China, um, and I believe South Africa. And there was a narrative, it, it, it was practically going viral, which to me was actually really suspicious. Even, even a couple of months ago, it went really viral. The dollar's gonna collapse. There's, you know, everybody's gonna jump onto these other currencies. And of course, you know, my first response is, yeah, right. When, when, when international trade and people start agreeing to, you know, Russian-based, you know, rule of law contracts, you know, call me up and let me know. Um, but there definitely are, you know, things going in place as, as the United States is finding itself off foot and kind of imbalanced right now. What, where are we most vulnerable? Is it Russia? Is it China? Is it something else? Like, what would you want to bring to everybody's attention? Like, where is our real Achilles? You know, I say we, there's lots of people listening internationally, but thinking from the perspective of the United States, where's the United States most vulnerable right now? Well, the Achilles heel for a good part of the world is the Achilles heel for the United States. Because if the United States heads into chaos and heads... Uh, away from being a powerful source of at least some good in the world. And I'm not going to be naive to think that all that we do is good. I'm not, I've lived long enough to realize that's not the case. But how many of the listeners would want uh, the Russian Bratva to be running the financial markets? Maybe if, maybe if there's someone from that group there, they'd be shaking their head wildly, yes. How many would want the completely lack of rule of law China to be in charge of uh, financial markets? Uh, financial markets in China are very weak and unstable right now. China is not the 12-foot giant people think it is. It has water problems, had a youth unemployment problems, has problems with uh, minority and ethnic groups. It has problems with the one-child policy and trying to go to war with one child and the grandparents and the parents probably trying to keep the, that one child in the apartment. Think of all the, the parents and grandparents who, that one child, they devoted most of their lives to making sure that child was successful and healthy. And then the PLA drafts him or her. Do you see a kind of a, an implosion within China? Other experts have, have, have talked about that. It, you know, China's got significant, you know, problems within its own borders. What do you see are their, their headwinds and how do they react with the, how do they react and interact with the rest of the world as those play out? Well, obviously the China's comeback after the, the COVID is not what they had hoped to be. It's been pretty slow. Uh, and they're playing a game with oil demand uh, showing that it's going up, whereas they're storing a lot of this stuff rather than using it. 
Uh, the story out today was another, you know, the, the Chinese are very clever about this, much like some of our corporations are. You send out good news stories and you make sure it goes viral and everyone thinks, maybe those guys talking about going downhill are wrong. This thing about uh, 1,200 gigawatts of solar power to be built in China in the next few years is going to turn around climate change. Ha! Huh. Are you kidding? That's a joke. In the next 20 to 30 years, they're still going to be de dependent on coal and, and, and LNG, and all of those uh, solar plants are going to be capacity, not necessarily generation. I don't know how many of your audience has uh, flown over Anna Mongolia. I did this a few years ago to see thousands upon thousands of wind vanes not connected by wires. Wow. <laughs> Maybe they've connected them since sure. then. And then, of course, there are the ghost villages yep. and the ghost houses and the ghost apartments and the real estate issues the Chinese are facing. They're going to lash out maybe not militarily, but at Taiwan and others in the region. If they get into a war with Taiwan, the world economy is going to be damaged. They understand it. Their power right now is based on economic growth. That economic growth is feeding into their military power, their diplomatic power, their educational power, their inventive power. If they are willing to shoot the golden goose, I think the smart guys know what's going to happen. What do you think, you know, I found it curious and, 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 and not to stoke, you know, political uh, views, but our team, I was surprised by Blinken's, you know, statements and, and his press release after being in, in China and making it loud and clear that, you know, we support uh, one China policy and you know making it clear that we're not going to interfere with with taiwan i i was actually surprised to to see that 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 caught me uh, a bit off guard what's the what's the the u.s rationale there well we've had a policy for many years that says just that and he had to reiterate that policy the timing was a gift to mr xi in the communist party because it pretty much said we think Taiwan is part of China. Uh, the Taiwanese, I'm sure, are not happy about that. Uh, the Taiwanese are living in a state of constant paranoia. Uh, if you take a look at pictures of their beaches, particularly the islands close to the PRC, it looks like a war zone. Uh, they're constantly being barraged uh, by propaganda, constantly being harassed by ships and aircraft. And then the United States, their really own ally that could ever protect them, says we believe in only one China. You see, I'm sure you know, David, that in, in there's the public word and then there is the private word. The public word is him saying that there's a one China policy and that's what we follow because that's actually our policy as written. Yeah, private words here. Private. We'll, we'll sell you some missiles and some jets. <laughs> well, that's not even private, but privately yeah. I'm sure he met with the, the lady head of Taiwan and her assistants and uh, so forth and and pretty much said, uh, we'll back you, but uh, we're not going to back you to the Third World War. Uh, that, that would just be devastating to everyone's economy. 
And if anything, the Chinese leadership and the American leadership have to do a lot of very quiet talking about this. What do you to slow down the the hatred that's being built? Sorry, damn it. No, yeah. no, that's okay. I, I, one of the things I wanted to ask about because again, y- your depth of knowledge is is it's extensive, and especially in in themes surrounding resources and and conflicts. One of the talking points, again, with this audience, a lot of people listening here, you know, a lot of people are familiar with global macro, you know, that's my background. And, you know, we titled this series Galactic Macro with the concept of really kind of pushing the edges and and taking a flashlight and shining to the corners where people maybe you're not seeing. And I love your example of, you know, pull out a map and look at a place that you never even think about and kind of study that. I, I, I love that. That resonates. There's lots of conversation. So what is known as, you know, uh, rare earth metals, and everybody talks about that and and everything else. And so we kind of know that story. But when you think in terms of, of resources and conflicts, what's being missed? What are people not talking about that you think that they should, that they should be paying attention to? Well, actually, I'm noticing this in some of my students and colleagues particularly those who were obsessed with the energy transition toward renewable energy and how this will give us greater energy, economic, and national security. I just have to, like my professor who asked me to go to India, move my head to the left. What are you guys thinking? What are you thinking? Who controls the supply chains for renewable energy? The Chinese. Who controls the cobalt out of the DRC, which is about 70% of the cobalt uh, produced and processed by the Chinese? Uh, We're going to be, uh, this whole obsession with speeding up the energy transition, I understand why it's happening, because of climate change and all this other stuff. That's what's really driving it. But people have to understand that it's not just about climate. It's also about energy security, environmental security, and economic security, and national security. We can't dive right into a new energy system without studying what's going to be happening with the elements of security. We're not doing that. We just have a whole bunch of people saying, more solar, more wind, good, period, end of discussion. No. In order to understand energy systems, you have to understand the entire supply and value chain. Most people look at the end product, the end use uh, technologies of solar panels and wind vanes. Where do these things come from? How are they created? What kind of transport is needed to make them move from point A to point B? And the products, where do they put them together? Who owns the technology? Who owns the resources from point one? Which gets me into an issue that I always get into arguments about. There's no such thing as clean energy. It doesn't exist. And I'm sure that the top finance people get that. If you followed so-called clean energy solar panels from the start of finding the silicon and the uh, aluminum and the copper and all this stuff, you'd see a lot of messy mining. You'd also see a lot of messy morality. Yeah, mining's mining's heavy duty. I was I was at a closed door uh, conference a while back um, that was very interesting, and I was with several you know ministers of energy in in Latin America on this very topic, and they had some of the largest you know mining companies there, uh, copper in particular, 
and they had a book, you know, six inches thick. And behind closed doors, they were saying, listen, this is, this is really messy. We don't have enough. We're not even remotely close to it. If we even, even if we could, you wouldn't want us to. It's, it's just, we don't have replacements for these things right now. You know, you look at copper, you look at, you know, forget the rare earths, just take something like copper, you know. It's it's a very, very, very messy uh, situation. And people forget other things too. I saw a blurb too. I, I, I haven't fact checked this, so the audience is, is welcome to do so and let me know if I'm wrong. But I heard uh, just a quick soundbite from, from Joe Rogan, uh, of all people, commenting about break dust particulates um, caused by cars. And he was saying, listen, it doesn't matter if you got an electric vehicle or a regular vehicle, just the, the particulates that are put into the atmosphere from the brake dust, which comes from all types of cars, is, you know, causes uh, a ton of health problems and, and is damaging. So I agree. I, and it's one of the things that concerns me. And it's one of the things I wanted to ask you as we think about the future, you teach and are inspiring young minds. There's a lot of apathy and, and, and concern and fear of, you know, the next generation coming into the workforce. What happens with your students? You know, a student comes to you and is like, professor, I want to make a meaningful difference. I want to also have a, a meaningful career. W- what do I do? Where do I go? Well, could I get back to what you were talking about? And I'll get to that because it's related to it. Uh, get back to what if we all have an energy transition, all the major, uh, Energy consumers has a very quick energy transition all at the same time. People on this uh, podcast know what's going to happen to prices. What's going to happen to skilled labor? What's going to happen to supply chains? They're going to get all clogged up. Uh, what about uh, the, the use of ships, and trains, and trucks? Uh, the demand for these products and technologies could overcome the demand for other things, and those prices would go up. So increases in the price of minerals and metals and technology will affect other prices, like food prices. It's all interrelated. I suppose if we were absolutely certain that everyone was going to go toward the energy transition quickly, we'd buy up futures in copper and aluminum and cobalt and all this other stuff if we could. And guess what? A lot of people are already doing that. And they're putting them in storage in places. But what happens? This is the kicker. If a new technology comes out that doesn't use all of this stored and hoarded metal, you're toast. And that's going to be what I think will save the world from a complete and utter energy and economic shock if this moves too quickly. Uh, and that is to develop alternatives to copper, alternatives to cobalt. There are people working on that for batteries. Alternatives to lithium. Lithium, you can't recycle it that well. Uh, what you need is something of a circular economy. Without that, you're going to take this stuff out of the ground. You've got to put it into materials and technologies, and then you're going to throw them in landfill. Yeah. Are you referring to materials such as uh, graphene? That's a material development that we've watched for, for a long time is fascinating and, and, and a lot of, lot of interesting applications there. Well, that's part of it. But another thing we have to think about, including my students with Catch Their Future, is the stuff we're reading now and the stuff we know now 
will not be the same that we'll be reading about and knowing 20, 30, 40 years from now. We're talking about an energy transition through net zero, which I think is the wrong way of looking at it, at 2050 to 2070. Okay, let's backtrack 30 to 40 years. What were energy systems like in the world 30 to 40 years ago? What was the economy like 30 to 40 years ago? We're going back 50, 60 years. We didn't even have a man on the moon yet. Think of how technology has changed so much. Who are we to arrogantly guess what will be available for any kind of energy transport or food technology in the future? We're falling into this Malthus uh, situation all over again, too. Malthus was wrong, by the way. Technology change in thinking and policy dug the world out of the Malthusian trap. And now a whole bunch of people are saying, we're in an energy Malthusian trap. We're in a food Malthusian trap. They never read history. There are a lot of smart people out here that can invent around it. Those are the people we need to focus on, not the people who are thinking, this is a straight line. Let's go with this metal. Let's go with this technology. Kill, let's go with these ideas. Uh, what we need is an orderly transition in energy and food and water and all kinds of other things. And we're not getting it orderly because we are thinking that things are going to be in stasis. And there's this big com uh, competition. Uh, that's going to interfere with our ability to think properly about this. Uh, actually, John Kerry said something very interesting early on in the, the debate just before COP27, I think it was. Uh, most of the investment in energy transition is going to have to come from the private sector. And this is a, a public sector maven saying that. And of course, I would agree with him. But also the most important thing he said was, the technology we know of now are not going to be the technologies we will have in 30, 40, and 50 years. Everything's going to be different. I don't believe much in 40, 50-year forecasts. I don't believe even in year forecasts sometimes. Think about the people who forecasted the price of oil in December 21. Was anyone right? No. LNG prices, no. All the people in Europe and elsewhere are going up in arms and sweating and biting their teeth as the price of natural gas uh, quintuples goes up 10 times in Europe. And they're thinking it's going to stay that way. Economies and people adjust. You're, you're, New laws can be developed. Yeah, you're preaching, you're preaching to the choir. Everybody uh, listening, I'm, I'm sure, can relate to that because... You know, forecasting is, you know, the job of, you know, you could boil that down to saying that's pretty much the job of most investors. And it's very difficult. <laughs> Billions of dollars are spent on on trying to do exactly that and get it right. And it is it is it is not easy in any any sense. Well, I, I kind of think of that as like statistical analysis. How confident are you in your analysis? Sixty percent? 70%, 90%. If you're confident 100%, I'm not going to talk with you. There's a good book. Have you read Super Forecasting? No, I haven't. No. Yeah, it's a great read. Uh, Check that one out. I'm going to they, they Super Forecasting. Yeah, yeah, the 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 book's fantastic. There's another one called Thinking in Thinking in Bets by Annie Duke. And, you know, my background when I got into uh to trading came from uh gambling. I actually used to play dice on the street corners as a kid. And um and so I, I 
I think in terms of probabilities. And I think most successful, you know, traders certainly have that uh, that quality as well. But super forecasting is very interesting because it gets into exactly that when talking about forecasting and thinking in terms of, you know, probability of an outcome. Yeah, is it 60%? Does that bump to 65 as new information comes in? And you're constantly calibrating that, right? And, and, and refining that. So, yeah, I agree. What do you think about, you know, today um, is actually very interesting news that came out today. So it's, you know, we're recording here. It's, it's June 29th. Big physics breakthrough. We have discovered, you know, or confirmed, you know, what was believed for many, many years, uh, gravitational waves. And, and the implications of that, do you think that, you know, obviously I'm a, I'm, I'm a, a big geek on the, on the UFO uh, subject. Do you think that we're about to have some breakthroughs in physics? Oh, I think we have breakthroughs in physics all the time. Uh, just a lot of it never really hits the public. As an undergraduate back in the late 1970s, you know, when dinosaurs were roaming around in Massachusetts, uh, I just on a whim took an astrophysics course as a freshman. I was the only freshman in the room. I figured it's high-level math. I can handle the high-level math. And then I started to get into the reality of what we were studying. To go from the high-level math to what exactly it was saying was such a huge intellectual leap. I found it fascinating. I couldn't sleep thinking about this stuff. Uh, but so much has changed in physics. People are still thinking in Newtonian physics, in Einsteinian physics, or even Max Planck quantum physics. It's different. Every generation, it seems, we have a new physics, a new way of looking at it, but it doesn't filter into the public for many years after that because mostly scientists are really bad communicators of what they do. You know, Einstein was a terrible communicator. The people we have now in the MIT labs and, and not so much in the Bell labs because they're more practical, but I... One of my first jobs out of my PhD was the Oak Ridge National Laboratory. And these folks were working on cutting edge things and pie in the sky things that companies wouldn't invest in. And I had such a tough time understanding the super brainiac physicists. They knew what was going on, but yet they couldn't get the stuff out of their minds and onto a paper other than to a, an academic audience and maybe 20 people read the paper. And then it collects dust and it does nothing else. I think in, if in the future we're going to do anything positive uh, to help solve some of the ideas that we face, we have to get the edge ideas out into the public and explain these are the opportunities, these are the trade-offs we have now. I'm sure there are a whole bunch of articles out there that have brilliant solutions. Nobody can understand them. You, you open up a physics article and you see Lagrangian multipliers and all these. Most people would think of it as squiggly lines and then they go to watch the football game. When invention happens and new ideas happen, it's kind of like an orange. The ideas are the, are the outside, the peel. But the public is on the inside, in the orange, in the juice, and the stuff never gets to them, except after many years. And the government's not doing a very good job of moving these ideas into the public either, except for military applications. And uh, war is not going to be the answer to our energy problems in the future. Uh, although 
if it gets to the point where we're going to have to get to war to get those energy resources, well, we may have to do that. But that's kind of the stupid man's answer to energy uh, resource stress. Is physics changing? Yes, it is. Where can we find out about those changing physics? We, we need to get some of the guys and ladies who are on the edge of this and train them how to speak common everyday languages. It doesn't have to be English. It could be French, German, Chinese, whatever. Uh, I remember trying to understand my linguistics professor in college. Genius, MIT, two PhDs. This guy couldn't explain how to uh, open up a pizza box without getting overly complicated. We have a lot of good people. We have a lot of creative people. Uh, I don't think of myself as one of these great thinkers. Uh, maybe I'm one of these translators that we need to go from the super smart guys, which I don't consider myself to be, to the regular people and explain things. Uh, I, I'm more of a the woodchopper and the fisherman of the intellectual world. I'm not the guy who figures out how to make a new Stradivarius. But you see, once a new Stradivarius is figured out, it'll take years for people to figure out how to use it. We have all kinds of technologies out there, uh, quantum computing and all this business. Do I understand that? No, I don't understand it. Can I see applications of it? Yes. Can I see dangers from it? Yes. This whole thing with AI, we talked about that for a bit. Who actually understands what that stuff is in the yeah. public? In the public. It, I'm scared nobody understands it privately either. I, we've, we've dug really, really deep into that, and it is alarming. I feel that the top, top, top people also don't understand what they've gotten themselves into. Well, AI also affects the stuff I've been talking about, energy, water, food, politics, and all this. Uh, how can you know that uh, the uh, president is being spoofed? That's the thing that people worry about now. Or is a robot going to take your job? Or kidnappings. You know, there's kidnappings taking place already. People spoof the voice of a loved one, and they're calling people and, and, and faking that, you know, somebody's daughter or son has been kidnapped. A person shows up and is all in panic, and, uh, and they commit a crime, and they kidnap the person that actually shows up instead. It's, you know, and that's just, just the beginning. Well, I think what's going on here, David, and I think we both understand this, and I'm pretty sure we talked about this a few times over the years, is the problem isn't the technology and the thinking development and the new ideas. It's that morality and ethics are not keeping up with these changes. Uh, are we a moral society within AI? Are we even ready for this? I don't think we are. Well, this is, this is what the the people that really understand the risk or at least as as best as could be understood with ai risk is they talk about the alignment problem and i think this is useful i'm, I'm if you permit me just a second i'm going to expand on this because it ties it directly into what you're saying what's important to understand with designing ai is you cannot design it to be controlled and we've known that that's not new all the experts know that 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 hasn't even been the intention for you know the last 20 years. So the best that you can do is you can align it. And in order to do that, it takes a lot of time. 
a lot of time, a lot of money. And what they suggest is that you're supposed to be building those things in parallel, large language models and all these kind of neural networks, but also the alignment models. And they estimate that we're seven to 10 years behind on the alignment models because it turned into effectively an arms race on the learning models. And, and now we don't have any way to align it. We're so far behind on, on, on doing it. And so the alignment is where you incorporate those things, the morals, you know, and they would be different from, from one place to the next, but we don't really have that in, uh, built in and we're far behind. Well, I'm thinking of that through another lens, uh, Wittgensteinian private language. Oh, that's a dropping a, that's a, that's a, that's a big word. Uh, why don't you explain to, to me in the audience what, what that is? Wittgenstein uh, was a philosopher long ago, not to get too complicated in this, who believes we never really communicate with each other because each and every one of us has their own private understanding of the words they use. Now, if you're talking about me talking with you, do you really understand what I'm talking about? Does every word that you're taking in from me have the same meaning? Does your uh, life experience and history with some of these words change the meaning a bit? Of course. As you're thinking about it. It'd be impossible not to. So now think about AI. There are few people even know what the terms are. No one's really explaining them. No one's explaining the potential of this. I think a lot of people think of that Boston company with the dog robots. And then they freak out and they just say, forget about this. I'm going to go watch the hockey game. People don't focus enough on these things to understand them. The regular folks are pretty much lost on things as simplistic as the price of eggs. This is not to disparage or insult. The functional literacy of the average American, well, what do we have? 65% of the public could not read a complicated paragraph. And now we're introducing these complicated new technologies in this world-changing set of ideas of quantum physics and AI and Internet of Things, which is an old idea but is also changing at the same time. How are they handling it? How are they understanding that? How many scientists go to the local pub while the guys are watching the Patriots game and ask them, hey, what do you think of AI? Could you imagine the response? Throw this fool out. Why do you think people can't understand economic policy? They've never had economics training. They just guess that they know it because they buy stuff. Energy education in this country and throughout the world is in miserable shape. That's why our policies are not going in the direction where they should be. You cannot make proper public policies without having a public that's ready to understand them. And this goes into the failure of leadership. Leaders? Name one. That's one of the first thing I do. When some, when, you know, even when I was teaching colonels and, and generals and all that, okay, name a great leader of today. Listen to our people running for president now. It's abysmal. There is no debate. I know of a congressman from North Carolina, very well-educated, very smart guy, experienced guy, who simply left the Congress because he told me. They're debating nothing. Most of my time is doing cold calls to get money for the next election. Well, it's, it's not only sad, it is ending toward the results that we see. 
We have to educate our people. The education systems in almost all countries are not up to the task of the problems we're facing in the future. And that's going to mess up our forecasts and our investments in the future. If you have the average folks not understanding these new technologies that are going to hit pretty soon. I think most of the younger kids or the teenagers and the college kids are looking at this. Wow, that's cool entertainment. You know, there's studies now. What's, what's really fascinating is there was this perception that younger generations understand technology because they've grown up with it. That, in fact, has been proven to be completely untrue. And just because they're used to using social media does not mean that they know how to use even basic technologies, you know, basic stuff, an Excel sheet, <laughs> a Word document. And, and this is problematic, which leads into, uh, you know, a really, really important question, because I think people listening to this would have this question for you as, you know, they think about their own children. There are hardworking, motivated people that, you know, are part of the audience here that have worked their asses off to be where they're at. The, the things that you say resonate as, as they do with me. And they're thinking about their own children, as, as, as any of us would. And if they asked you and said, you know, how do I instill a sense of, you know, leadership or, you know, a way to, to, to prepare for the future, what advice would you give to, to parents that are in the audience listening to you? Wow, that's a tough one because there are so many outside influences uh, that we could not, most of it is unobservable to parents. I had no idea how messed up the education system was until I saw the results of some of the kids that I met over the last few years. I have no idea where they're coming from. Their idea of success has no meaning in this world in a practical sense. And maybe some of the people listening in on this have seen this as well. Getting things done. This is mostly physical stuff, not internet stuff. Uh, driving to the supermarket, things like to be a leader requires that you understand your people. How can these kids understand their people if they barely communicate with them? Uh, the pandemic got in the way of that. How many kids stayed in front of their computers before the pandemic, during the pandemic, and after the pandemic? Uh, they have lost the ability to read facial expressions, body language, many of them. A lot of life is intuition. A lot of leadership is intuition, too. And, you, and the real, really good leaders I've known in my life were born leaders. And it isn't that you can judge a leader you know, walking into an elementary school, he's the next president. That's nonsense, because in this country, the real leaders never become president. Uh, but I have been able to pick some of the best leaders out of my military students from the beginning of the first day when I met them. I had this game I would play with myself. Which of these students in this 17-person seminar are going to go to high leadership position? And I'd walk around and I'd start asking questions. They wouldn't know what I was doing. And, you know, what do you think of this issue? What do you, way they answered the question is more important how they answered the question. If they didn't know anything about it and they struggled with it and they were trying to figure out how to better the seminar, then I knew these people were going forward. And right now I have, a, a, oh, I don't know, 10 or 12 lieutenant generals 
many ambassadors, uh, the, the head of the NSA. Uh, no kidding. These are former students that I kind of picked in the class. Like, this guy's going somewhere. This lady's going somewhere. The commandant of the Coast Guard was a student of mine. I could tell from day one this was a leader. But how do you instill leadership in a young person? Well, I guess one way, depending on your wealth, is put them on a sailboat, put them in front of the wheel, and head toward a storm. Not a bad one. A mild one. Caveat emptor, you, you take the risks, folks. You're listening to this. But I learned a lot from being out in the water, particularly with other people. Uh, we ran a fishing boat, and we saw the weather turning bad. Immediately, if you have any leadership skills, they're going to kick in. There are land versions of that. I suppose the Boy Scouts used to have that. The Girl Scouts used to have that. But now most uh, kids go to the Internet and, and watch a, uh, a TikTok or a YouTube video on how to be a leader. Uh, that's not the way to do it. You have to be in the practical world. You have to be facing practical challenges. I think one thing that the government could do and others could do, even private sector people could do if they had the right kind of people with the right moral and ethical and leadership principles, is you start these systems where these kids are challenged. Civilian Conservation Corps. Get them out of the basements and away from the computers. Bring them out into the mountains. 10 or 12 kids with adult supervision, of course, which we don't have in the White House, but that's something else. But adult supervision out in the mountains and then watch them figure their way back to safety. Go through difficult things. Richard Branson's story with his mom. When he was five years old, his mom dropped him off, I don't know how far it was from their home, but several kilometers away as a five-year-old. I think this, you know, where he grew up and he had to make his way, he had to make his way home. And, you know, one of the best experiences, you know, of his, of his life. And as my mom, my own mother used to say, uh, you know, referring back to your advice on oceans, which I think is great. Calm seas don't make great sailors. You, you, you have to be challenged. We can go back to uh, another statement. I forget now where exactly it's from. And there are all kinds of claims who said it first. But like all these things, probably a thousand people said it over the world. Easy times make weak leaders. Weak leaders make difficult times. Difficult times make great leaders. If you're going to have a soft life, and come on, Dave, we know that most kids in the U.S. Uh, from the families who are, or overseas from the family of the people listening to this, have pretty good lives. Private schools, which I think are a disaster. I think if you want to toughen a kid up and teach him about leadership, bring him to a public school and deal with it. You know, that, that's one way of doing it. The private school, you have the same kids in the same background with the same topsiders and the same uniform, and they all go back to their mansion houses, and they have no understanding of the rest of the people in their country. There's something I want to I want to go back to is, you know, as we come up here on the top of the hour. That really, really resonates with me. That you said you said it at the beginning of our conversation, and you mentioned it here towards the end as well. You talked about intuition, and, and this fascinates me because this is something that I've openly talked about, you know, within our firm, our clients, and and with other traders. That most 
most traders don't talk about intuition, but the best traders I've ever met in my life are extraordinarily strong in intuition. And because that's harder to kind of quantify, it doesn't get talked about or it's almost even stigmatized, yet it's such a powerful skill. And what I share with people is that it is something you can develop and it is something that parents, so kind of looping this all together here, my, my dad, he didn't beat it into us, but he was constantly pushing us to, to hone in intuitive skills. He literally made it a point of, of you know, raising us is, you know, he said, pay attention to listen to your instincts and it will save your ass over and over and over again, more times than you'll be able to count. And he was right. <laughs> so, so it's so fascinating that, you know, as a professor that you would talk on about something that feels a little bit less tangible, but could, could we, I'd love to conclude with your, your thoughts on, on intuition and how any of us, whether, you know, parents, you know, kids, new young leaders, anybody could, could tune in or, or, or hone in on that, that skill. Well, that's a tough one because intuition is almost like the seventh sense. Uh, and I can talk about my example and the example I've seen in some younger people who have almost immediately clear intuition, which is sometimes shocking to see. And, and you know, even as young children, they say things that as adults, we could never figure out. Some people have strong intuitive skills. Maybe it's genetic, maybe it's experiential, I don't know. But how do you get students and your children and others you know to be more in tune uh, with the intuitive life? Intuition is a buildup of experiences often. And if a child or a student or even an adult doesn't have experiences in a certain field, that intuition can atrophy. And we can see that in some of our leaders. They have atrophied intuition. Uh, also, if you're, let's say, a hockey player, when you're really, I played hockey as a young person, wasn't very good at it, hence I'm a professor. Uh, you could almost feel the puck and not see it. You knew it was there, you knew where it was going. That's also experience, but it's all to intuition and intuition. I don't know how you separate the two out. And I, I had a neighbor who taught me about that. Just listen to the ice. Listen to the other players. How are they breathing? What's going on? Where's the puck now? Yeah, well, Gretzky's famous quote, you know, skate. his, his whole thing was skate to where the puck is going to be, not where it's at. I was talking with an energy CEO uh, three weeks ago, and I said, trying to figure out what to invest in now is a lot like bird hunting. If you shoot where the bird is now, you're not going to hit him where he is in the future. You need to have some sense of where this is heading. Uh, and birds don't fly in straight lines, nor do uh, politics and energy systems. Uh, but I think it's very important that uh, our kids develop some sense of thinking about the world because my fear is many of them are losing it. Being in front of a computer is not a way to improve your intuition about the world. If anything, if anything, social media is a complete distortion. Uh, and every morning, just as, again, on a game I play, I flip through Twitter and I look at some of the stuff and I figure 80% of it is total garbage. 
absolutely useless garbage. How would many people even be able to distinguish that? And then I see the responses to it, and then I get to actual work. Uh, some days it's, it's more depressing than others. But this is the way people are communicating now. Uh, and it, the problems begin when these young people go to co companies and they get their first jobs and they have no idea how to react to the people around them. Especially in macro. I don't know anybody that works in macro that is in generally would, you know, label themselves an optimist. Be because when you, when you sit and you study these things all day long, as many of us do, the world feels pretty heavy duty and you wonder how in the world, you know, humanity is going to make it. Nonetheless, you know, the, the, the human spirit, you know, uh, pushes forward. What are you, two questions for you, what are you most hopeful about? What is the, the best potential you see for, for the future of humanity? And, you know, I always love asking people for book recommendations. And especially from people that are avid readers, you are a, a, an avid reader. You've read thousands of books, you know, uh, during your life. So what are you most hopeful for? And, and what's, a, what's a book you'd, you'd recommend for the, for the audience? What am I most hopeful for? You, well, you got me on a day where I'm, <laughs> it's, it's a tough one. You know, reading the news today, I think the, the, the greatest well of hope that I can see is that there are still good people amongst us. Uh, I've seen a lot of evil in the world. I'm sure you have and the others listening have too, and it just gets you down and you figure these guys are often on the top and they're making decisions and we know how they get there, so what's the point? The point is there are still good people out there. That's my well of optimism. And they do help each other. They do come out of the work. And every once in a while in my life, and maybe some people listening in are, are atheists or agnostics or whatever, but there have been certain situations in my, my life where things have happened and it really did seem to be proof of God. Uh, just no way this could have happened uh, without some supreme something or other, whatever you believe in, I don't want to impose my opinions on you intervening in some small way. It's arrogance to think that this being would intervene for me, but getting shot at Jerusalem on Thanksgiving evening in 1995, uh, buildings getting blown up, uh, missing a traffic accident, things like that. These things happen. And sometimes uh, a saying uh, through the Irish is, you've had a lot of bad luck. It's about time you had some good luck. I think to study the world as we do, David, means that we see a lot of the downsides in order to understand the upsides. And, and if we didn't understand the downsides, once we realized the upsides, we would not be so gleeful. You know, you see something actually working out, it's isolation because so many things don't work out. You know, it's like baseball. You, you, you hit 500, you're amazing. You hit 300, you're almost amazing. You hit 150, you're pretty darn good. In life, it's similar. But most kids, most younger people, even in my generation, thought, well, I'm from this successful family, therefore I'm going to be successful. No, that's not the way it works out. 
you're going to have to get a few bloody noses and scraped knees before you figure out how to navigate your way through the world. Uh, and if you don't get some of those bloody noses and scraped knees, you will never learn. Uh, there was a story out of Australia, and I'm sure you've been there a few times, David, about parents who were concerned about their kids' face planting. They didn't know how to get up after falling down. Wow, that's wild. The most important I, thing... I can't even imagine. That's wild. Okay, the biggest lessons I ever had, and I'm pretty sure this has been in your life too, is when you fall down, when you fail, how you get up is when the learning happens. And I read some quote the other day, when I'm winning, I'm winning, and when I'm losing, I'm learning. That's right. I've heard and, that too. I would like to think that, but sometimes when things are not going well, I'm thinking, oh, this is dreadful. I'm definitely losing here. But some of the worst moments in my life have ended up to be the most educational. I didn't even know it until years later. Something good, something bad. This is one of the lessons I give to some of my students and, and other younger people and other people if they're willing to listen. So you're optimistic and, that we will... We will learn to 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 fall and, and and get back up, and that you know there are good people out there, which of course I completely agree, and and we will continue to seek each other out and and help one another. Well, that's part of it, uh, but it takes a lot of work to make that happen. Things don't just fall into your lap, into your pal, your 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 lap, your your bank account, whatever. That's not the way life is. Another thing I've learned through my life is a quote I heard from someone from South Korea. I work 18 hours a day, then I get lucky. You can't succeed in this world by not working. I, I, I'm not probably the best person to ask about this because I am certainly far from a perfect leader or even a great leader, even a good leader. Uh, I'm not the the best at anything I do. Let's be reasonable. They're always good people. They're always better people. And that's what keeps on driving me. Well, and, 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 and we appreciate that about you, Paul. That's, that's what's always, you know, connected me to you is that you're, you're constantly sharpening the saw. You're always looking for ways to learn, to improve, and, and there's tremendous value in that. So on the, on the final point with a, with a book, and I'm sure you probably have a zillion that come to mind, but w what would be a book recommendation that you would leave our, our audience with? Any book, any book you like, what, what would you, what would you recommend as a, as a good read for the audience? Well, I would start with The World in 2050 by Hamish McRae, How the Real the World Really Works by Vaclav Smil, who's a really challenging author. Uh, any book by Malcolm Gladwell, he's an irritating person, but he gets you thinking. Uh, the Wisdom of the Bullfrog. The Wisdom of the Bullfrog, okay. It's a new By one. Admiral McRaven. It's uh, lessons in leadership that he learned over his career as a SEAL and as later on as the head of the SEALs. So that's a start off with. And for you, there's a special one, David. Coffee Land. Oh, wonderful. I appreciate the that. The History and Geopolitics of Coffee by Augustine Sedgwick. I will, I will order that one today. 
And then there's another one, you know, I, I just read, I don't know how many I've read, even just to some extreme economics or extreme economies by a Richard Davies. It doesn't look into the normal economies. It looks into slums and places where the the aging of society, like uh, the area of Akita in Japan, where the average age is now 56, and how do people survive? How does the economy survive? Looks into uh, Santiago, Chile, kind of the uh, barrio economics of that. Glasgow, Scotland, uh, how do people survive? And then, oddly enough, he talks about a prison in Louisiana and how people survive in those difficult circumstances. This is what he defines as extreme economies. I've read this thing twice, and each time I learned something. Uh, but there are just so many good books out there, and there's so many lousy books, too. Uh, anything by Bill Bryson is worth it if you need a laugh. So, all right, David, thank you. Well, Dr. Paul Sullivan, folks, I know everybody is going to enjoy listening to this. We got not just one book recommendation, but several. We'll make sure that we put those in the show notes. Paul, you're a good friend. I appreciate you taking the time to come on the show and, and have this conversation with me. And um, I hope that we'll get to do more of this soon because there's just so, so many more places to, to cover with this. So thank you for your time. And uh, with that, Niels, uh, we'll turn that back over to you. Thank you so much, Paul and David, for a wide-ranging conversation from the challenges in part of the Middle East to the risks of the energy supply chain to ending up with some parental advice to our youngsters setting out in their own careers. Of course, the point that Paul makes regarding how geopolitical power is closely tied to oil and energy security is something that I think many of our listeners will be familiar with from our various conversations in the past couple of years. And we really need to continue to better understand the connection between some of these choke points in the energy supply chain and the financial markets. And closely related to this, of course, is the narrative that we may not be talking about, namely things like who really controls the supply chain of the green energy transition, which for the most part are the Chinese. And we need to be honest about the fact that there is no such thing as truly green energy and that it all comes at a cost, which, incidentally, Madame Lagarde from the ECB has come out saying very clearly now that this cost is inflation. Finally, I did enjoy the last part about what we as parents need to be mindful of when it comes to the younger generation and the role that intuition plays in our lives and in their lives and how it may be lost due to the technological advancements that we have seen and the impact it has had on our kids. That's it for today. Make sure you go and follow Paul's and David's work because as you can tell from today's conversation, there are many exciting facets to learn from those who have been in the trenches for many years and we really look forward to exploring many more of them as this series continues. From David and me, thanks ever so much for listening. We look forward to being back with you on the next episode and in the meantime... Take care of yourself and take care of each other. Thanks for listening to Top Traders Unplugged. If you feel you learned something of value from today's episode, the best way to stay updated is to go on over to iTunes and subscribe to the show so that you'll be sure to get all the new episodes as they're released. 
We have some amazing guests lined up for you. And to ensure our show continues to grow, please leave us an honest rating and review in iTunes. It only takes a minute and it's the best way to show us you love the podcast. We'll see you next time on Top Traders Unplugged.